We're coming to the last part of the book of Colossians. Uh, uh, we've uh, dealt with uh, a lot of Colossians, and we're in chapter 4, and at verse 7, Paul begins to wind down. Now, you can say at this stage, the letter to the Colossians is basically finished, but uh, Paul reveals something about his personality, the way he deals with people, his relationships, and uh, so he says, uh, Tychicus uh, will tell you all about my activities. Well, and then he said, he's a beloved brother and faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. Well, uh, it just lets us know that Paul had a personal life. Now, many of us are fascinated. What is a person that's famous, uh, as high profile? What are they really like? Uh, some people don't care about things like that. Uh, I do. <laughs> I, I am curious about what a, per a person is really like. Uh, I had the privilege of knowing Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones better than almost anybody. Uh, and <laughs> I know a little bit about Colin and Amanda Dye. Louise and I consider them personal friends. Uh, it's a privilege to know a person uh, like that. Well, now, the nearest we're going to get to understanding the Apostle Paul, what was he like, uh, we asked the question, I came up with this phrase, is he ever off duty? Uh, I'll tell you where I got that phrase. Uh, for a number of years, uh, Lyndon Bowring and I, with his friend Alan, uh, uh, can't even think of his name right now, uh, Lyndon Allen and I, when we were in Israel, uh, we had a special friend. And uh, sometimes uh, we would see him. But uh, Alan made the comment that this man is never off duty. He's always on duty when he's with us. Uh, that means uh, he never lets his hair down or anything like that. Uh, I've often thought that Jesus had his personal friends, uh, Lazarus, uh, Mary, Martha, and maybe then Jesus was off duty. <laughs> but not really, because even when he was just there, for a meal. You remember how uh, Mary was angry that, uh, no, Martha was angry that Mary uh, was sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha was doing all the work and, and she complained to Jesus and, and uh, thinking that Jesus would say to Martha, well, now go help your mother. But instead, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things. And then said, Mary has chosen the good part. She's done the right thing. That's a good hint to let us know that the best way we can spend our time is in the presence of Jesus. That said, uh, I doubt Jesus was really off duty then uh, because he was having to, to minister. Well, these are thoughts we have. And Paul obviously had a good relationship with these people. And uh, he wants the Colossians to esteem them. This is the interesting thing. Paul was wanting everybody to like the people that he's getting ready to describe. And so he mentions Tychicus. Uh, he's the one that took the letter to the Colossians. He probably did this to uh, the Ephesians as well. Uh, how would you feel if your only ministry uh, was doing something like that, like carrying Paul's bags or just he's going to uh, be doing nothing but giving the letter, but that would be a great honor. Chances are, 
chances are that Tychicus got to see it first. He may have read the letter, and uh, he considers it such an honor to be able to do this. Uh, you know, there's several gifts of the Spirit mentioned, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and many of us would like the gift of prophecy or miracles or healing. Uh, the least gift of all, and some perhaps uh, don't even think about it. Maybe they don't want it because it carries no prestige. Paul calls it the gift of helps or the gift of helping others. Uh, would you be willing for that to be your gift? Well, I can tell you, it's kind of like uh, having an organ in your body, the pancreas or small intestines. They don't have any profile, but the body would fail would die without them. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, he refers to the gifts that have more profile, like the head, the eyes. And then he says there are those gifts that are more like our unpresentable parts and refers to the organs in the body. These have no profile in the church, but very important. And that's the way I see Tychicus. Uh, so that's the thing. Think about this. And then he refers to Onesimus. Now, he was the converted slave that apparently had uh, let somebody down. And Philemon is that person. The book of Philemon, one chapter, is all about when Paul writes to Philemon and says, I realize that Onesimus uh, let you down, but he's been very valuable to me. And he's not the same Onesimus. And so please accept him. That's what the whole epistle is about. It just shows how Paul is wanting to get people to make up. Uh, maybe you have fallen out with someone, uh, somebody that you've esteemed and, and you've loved, and somebody lets you down. Uh, he's going to refer to Mark in a few minutes. Uh, Mark let Paul down. Uh, you see, these, these things happen in the body of Christ. Uh, a relationship can turn sour. And you wonder, why does God let things like this happen? Uh, one of my closest friends many, many years ago, goes back to when I was in Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, he was one of my earliest mentors. And I esteemed him so highly. I tell you, he was just like next to Jesus. And I thought, a lot of people have disappointed me, but I don't think this man ever would. You know what? He did. He did. And uh, we made up in later years and, and became fairly good friends. But never once, never once did he say, I'm sorry, I let you down. I don't know. It would have made me feel better. Uh, but he didn't. And I loved him anyway. And there are those who they do obvious things that make you feel bad. And you think, can't they see it? But everybody has his or her blind spot. I've got mine. And I'm sure there are people out there, maybe somebody watching me for all I know, but there are people in the world that would say about me, I let them down. Tell you what I've learned. I've lived long enough to say, every person that I began to admire a little bit too much, sooner or later, disappointed me. And now look, that's not their fault. Nobody's perfect. It's my fault for esteeming them too highly. Uh, 
I think that's been a danger of my own for years. I, I, I put people on a pedestal. Uh, and I don't want to be like that, but I have been like that. And I would say to you, be careful. Anybody that you esteem, they have their weaknesses. It's only a matter of time that you will find out what their weakness is. And, uh, and then will you still admire them? Will you still love them? Because what if the whole world could see everything about you? Uh, wouldn't you die a thousand deaths if everybody could see what God knows and what a lot of people know? Uh, I think of a, of a phrase, it goes like this, the truth is worse than what they know. Well, we are aware of what some people know, but God knows the truth. And the wonderful thing is, and never forget this, one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms is Psalm 103, verse 14. God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Well, if God can remember that, we need to remember that about one and others. Now, uh, Paul, now in verse 10, here's the way he puts it. He said, uh, Aristarchus, I can't pronounce it very well, my prisoner, prisoner greets you and Mark the cousin of Barnabas. And uh, he said, uh, we give you this. He's not using the royal we, but the truth is, Paul did have people with him. Uh, so, Having referred what he did, to, he says we in verse 10, uh, he refers to Mark. Now, this is the same Mark that gave us the gospel of Mark. Uh, we wouldn't know this if, if Paul didn't tell us. For example, did you know that he was the cousin of Barnabas? Now, Barnabas, as far as the scriptures would show, nearly everything about Barnabas is good. Uh, he's referred to as a good man. And Barnabas was the one who, when everybody was scared to death of the Apostle Paul, I mean, they were terrified because they couldn't believe that Saul of Tarsus, who was killing Christians and, and arresting them, he suddenly converted. And the Christian Jews just weren't sure about that. Barnabas. Barnabas went to them and said, this man is okay. And they took Barnabas's word. And so Barnabas is a bit of a hero. He's, he's like that. But then it's interesting. He says, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes, welcome him. Now, <laughs> I reckon there was something, the fact that Barnabas was the cousin of Mark, uh, had something to do with the fact that when Paul and Mark had uh, their falling out, are you aware of this? Uh, we read it in Acts chapter 15, uh, where Paul uh, refused to take Mark on the journey. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, interesting passage of Scripture. It just lets you know that not everything in the earliest church was perfect. Uh, it just happens that people had their faults. And uh, so uh, here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, uh, 15, where after some days, this is starting in verse 36, Acts chapter 15, so Acts 15, 
After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Well, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, Mark. John called Mark. It's the same Mark. Well, Paul thought best not to take them uh, because uh, he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them. And so Paul lost confidence in Mark. And it turns out that there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening churches. Now, here's the thing. Barnabas decided to stay with Mark. As Michael Eaton pointed out, the fact that they were relatives may have had something to do with it. Uh, we're partial to those that are related to us. Uh, you might say that Barnabas shouldn't have gone with that, and maybe he didn't. Maybe Michael's speculation is ill-founded. But you can't help but wonder if the reason Barnabas was willing to take Mark is that they were related. And Paul wouldn't have anything to do with Mark at that time. So he takes Silas. Now here's the interesting thing. When you consider the great divisions in church history, and there are many, there are many, not just this one that we're describing today, uh, but uh, I could give you one story after another, famous people who just didn't get on with each other and uh, would go pretty far in calling names, and I'm not going to go into that. But here's the thing. Even after Paul refused Barnabas, uh, refused Mark, take Silas, God uses Paul and Silas. Now you wonder, did the devil get in when Paul wouldn't have Mark? Did the devil get in to make Paul turn against Mark? Or was this God's purpose? Uh, can you uh, bear with me if I give you again my own illustration? When you want to know what is the difference between what God has predestined and what he has permitted. And here's my way of putting it. There was a day when Moses saw the burning bush, and the bush should have burned up. It was on fire, but it wasn't burned up. And Paul, uh, Barnabas, sorry, I'm making all kinds of mistakes today. I could rerun this, but I think you'll just have to forgive me. I'm sure that you will. Moses said to himself, I'm going to see what is going on here. And he runs up to the bush on fire to see why it's happening. And God says, stop, stop, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. God did not want Moses to know what Moses wanted to know. There are some things we want to know. And if God doesn't want us to know what we want to know, we've got to allow that. Now, what happens is if we don't know, we make up a, a, a conclusion. Sometimes we will let logic govern us. I would say whenever we want to know the difference between what is predestined and what is permitted, remember the burning bush. It's holy ground. Take off your shoes. Don't try to figure it out. 
There are some things God doesn't want you to figure out. So don't. I would urge you, don't go to logic and say, well, that means this. Don't do that. Just be willing not to know everything. And so in the case of Paul and Barnabas falling out, uh, what we know is this, that God used Silas, who was chosen, and the stories about Paul and Silas, especially when they were uh, in Philippi and they were in the jail and they were singing praises to God at midnight and an earthquake came and, and the jailer was converted. It just shows that God can overrule and people he may choose for you to work with. You may not want to work with them at first. And you think, I don't think I like that person. The kingdom of God matters more. Don't go by what is personal, what seems good to you. Understand that God could have a higher purpose. You're not supposed to know everything. What we know is this, and you can go to the bank with this one. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Well, that's what God wants us to see. So Mark, uh, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, uh, uh, actually uh, was rejected by Paul. Now, there's one thing I should point out. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, bring Mark. This is his last epistle just before he dies. And he says, bring Mark. He's profitable. He's useful. All right. Then people say, that shows Paul was willing to admit that he was wrong and Mark was a good man. Or others would say, no, it shows that Mark had changed. And therefore, Paul says, he's okay. Things like that we will never know. When we get to heaven, we will find out, did Paul change his mind about Mark and say, I was wrong, he's a good man? Or was it that Mark changed? And Paul says, bring him. In any case, it just goes to show we must never tell the score in the middle of the game, as someone put it to me. Don't tell the score, it's not over. Or as Yogi Berra would say, it ain't over till it's over. And uh, so maybe the person that you have fallen out with and you think, well, good friends for a while, it's over. Maybe and maybe not. And understand that the best of people, and, and Paul is just letting us know about these people. And uh, then <laughs> here's something kind of funny, I think. I hope you're going to smile at what I'm getting ready to tell you. And then he says, there is Jesus who is called justice. Whoops, did he make a mistake? No, he says, uh, he's talking about a man whose name was Jesus, and it's not our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to remember, in those days, many people were called Jesus. And so not only the, the son of Joseph and Mary uh, was called Jesus, but there was a man. Now, here he is, he's converted, but understandably he doesn't want to be called jesus i can understand that and we call him justice said said paul and i'm sure that's exactly what this man wanted now that reminds me of a funny story maybe some of you know gerald coates he's a friend of mine and he told me uh, the background being that 
in Latin America, there are a lot of people who are still named Jesus, Jesus. They do that. I don't think many in Britain or America would name their child Jesus, but they do that. Uh, and there was a, a Mexican restaurant in Los Angeles that Gerald went to with an American evangelical friend, and they were going to have lunch. And so uh, Gerald added, when he gave his uh, order, he said, I will have a glass of red wine. And the American evangelical went, oh, oh like that. And then Gerald put up his hands and he said, Jesus, 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 save me from these wretched Americans. A Mexican waiter ran over to Gerald and said, did you call me? His name was Jesus. Well, forgive me for telling you that. I couldn't help but, but think of it. And then we learned something more. I find this so interesting. He said, there the only men of the circumcision who are with me, Mark, uh, bring him, uh, and this man called Justice. He said, these are the only men of the circumcision with me among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And uh, they've been a great comfort to me. Now, what does this tell you? He's talking about Jews who are Christians. And he had many Gentiles around him. And it, most of his ministry was with Gentiles. And never forget this, that God called Paul to be the ambassador to the Gentiles. Can you imagine what that was like for Paul? I don't know if you are aware that the culture of Jews and that of Gentiles, black and white difference, not even to be compared and there was a certain type of Jew, whether Paul was one of these, possibly, who every day would pray this prayer. I thank God that I am not a Gentile, that I'm not a wo woman, and uh, that I'm not a dog. That's what certain Jews would pray. The point is, they had this culture. Well, now, here is Paul writing from prison. And he said, I've got a couple of Jewish friends with me. They're the only ones with me. And he said, they have been a great comfort to me. Well, it lets, lets you know that Paul you know, is more at home with, with Jews. They have the same culture. And I suspect uh, some of you, uh, you're from uh, Ghana. And uh, you run into a, a Nigerian uh, you get on with them okay, but if you run into somebody from Ghana, you say, oh, great to see you. It's a little different. Uh, we're all a bit like that. We gravitate naturally to those if we've had the same culture. It's just a natural thing. Well, that's all Paul is saying. He's, he's actually saying that uh, here I am in prison, and I've got a couple of friends, Jewish friends, and they've been a great comfort to me. He didn't need to share that but that tells you just a little bit about his personality. So when I think of how in, uh, right after Saul of Tarsus was converted and then became known as Paul, uh, he was said, I've called you to the Gentiles. I would imagine that inwardly Paul would say, oh, no, do I have to? 
but that was his ministry. His preference would have been to reach his own people. In Romans 9, verse 1, he says right at the beginning, his heart was with the Jews. That's where his heart was. And yet his ministry was to Gentiles. I wonder if there's somebody listening to me right now. Uh, God has put you where you wouldn't want to be, but maybe where you are, you're doing a better job because you're not with those you personally and naturally like. And maybe you're called to a certain kind of ministry. And it's different from what you want. And it's not where would you like to be and the people you have to work with. They're not your kind of friends. You wouldn't want to go on vacation with them. You wouldn't want to go on holiday with them, but you're, you're, you're with them. Well, this has been the case over the many, many years. Uh, may I share a personal word? When I was at Westminster Chapel, I'd been there for 23 years at this moment. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know why I had these thoughts, but I did. I said to myself, you know, how long am I going to stay at Westminster Chapel? Now, I'll be honest with you, what kept me there as long as I was there? If you want to know, I kept hoping that we would see revival. I lived for that. And I'll come clean and tell you I live for that to this day. Here I am, 85 years old. God may have a few years left for me. He may not. But as long as I'm alive, I'm hoping for revival. Well, I hope for that at Westminster Chapel. But I'd been there 23 years, and I thought, how long am I going to stay? Am I going to stay forever? I said to myself, I think I'll stay 25 years. That sounds about right, 25 years. And then I thought, what will I do when I go back to America? Because nobody over there knows me. And I began to panic. I thought, well, fair enough. I'll just be, become a fisherman, fish 25 hours a day in my retirement. And I was having that very thought. And in that moment, I heard these words. I promise you, I heard these words. Your ministry in America will be to charismatics. I thought, oh, no, please, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Do you know what? My ministry since retiring in America has been 80% to charismatics. Now, I need to make a point here, and I'm just being honest again. Charismatics in America are different from charismatics in England. I mean, huge difference. In England, the charismatic movement is mainstream, mainstream. I mean, the greatest churches like Holy Trinity Brompton, the present Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, I'm telling you, and God has called me to, to um, be friendly with these people. I've preached at HTB. I've preached for Focus uh, many times. And I know about British charismatics. They're just altogether different. <laughs> the American charismatic, you know, they embarrass me. They scream hard, jump up and down, and I could go on and on. But that's where God has put me. Now, I do get to come to England once in a while, and I thank God for that. But mostly it's been charismatics in America, not what I would choose. I promise you. But that's where God has put me. And I honestly don't know if I'm doing much good. Maybe I am. It's hard to say. But here's my point. Sometimes God calls us to people and places that we are not familiar with so we will get joy from serving God and not get our joy 
or happiness from circumstances. And so sometimes God uses circumstances to get your attention, to drive you to your knees and pray harder, and you are not in it for the fun, the, the people that you like naturally. And God may put you with people you wouldn't care to go on holiday with, as I said. But that's what I get from these verses, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Well, next time when we get together, we will finish Colossians, and, uh, and I'm sure by that time uh, we will see that uh, we've treated Colossians long enough. Until next time, God bless you. See you again.